0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 178, the 15th century economy, part one. We've had lots of politics, have we not? and I suspect that it's time to take a rest, a breather. Edward IV is on his throne and looking pretty secure now and ready to let the partying roll. Henry Tudor is an exile and a a diplomatic pawn for the big boys. So let's sneak away from the Walls of the Roses for a moment and look at the wider picture. What was happening in the English economy between the Black Death and the start of the 16th century? you'll remember all the excitement we had about the Black Death and all of that and the impact it might or might not have had on the English society. Well, let's hear about how that's all going and what it's like getting on in the Middle Ages. And I think what we'll do is talk about towns, how they fared economically and all that, and then a bit about what it was like to live there. And then next week, the same do's for the countryside, and then draw some slightly pompous, overblown conclusions. What do you think? Okay, then, I'll take silence to mean enthusiastic assent and plough on. Now, just to recap, super briefly, people died like flies in the Black Death. Now, clearly, I could be accused of being just a little bit high level in the statement or even a bit obvious. But there we go. The big thing to remember about the Black Death is a lot of people died. So many that the population falls by, well, no one quite knows by how much but it could have been 50% lower after the Black Death than it was before. This had a few consequences. There were a lot fewer people around. Getting a dinner party together was more of a struggle, and there were lots of singles to deal with. But also, of course, maybe a little more significantly, suddenly Labour was in very short supply, and suddenly Labour had more power. Now, I don't know if any of you covered Malthus in your youth, I did, in my very first geography class in the big school, before I'd learnt how dangerous the dinicue there could be. I can remember the smell of my shiny new textbook. Anyway, after a Malthusian crisis like the Black Death, you would expect the population to bounce back. And indeed so it did. And by 1377, the population was of the order of two and a half million. Living in the same territory as that in which 53 million people now live, just as a point of reference. Of these two and a half million, about 900,000, so just under a million, 900,000 were under 15 children. Something like 30,000 were clergy, and that leaves us with something like one and a half million adults. But then in the 1360s and 70s, along came more plague, and hammered the population of England right back down again. And these multiple hits might have affected progressively younger people, affecting the ability of the population to renew itself. And so by 1400, the population was firmly back to 50% of the pre-1315 level, something like 2 million people. And up to 1450, it's quite probable that things continued to be seriously tricky and the population actually fell slightly further in the period to 1450. And so we might have reached a low of 1.9 million After that, there is then, finally, something of a recovery in the population, rising gently afterwards. So we have a pretty firm estimate of about 2.8 million in 1581. But what we're talking about throughout the 15th century is population stagnation. In terms of climate, the 15th century sits between the medieval warm period, which we think ended around 1250, and the Little Ice Age, something to look forward to from about 1500. One theory about the 15th century is that the period saw the start of a transition from a feudal economy to a capitalist one. The argument is that the century saw the emergence of a much freer labour force and the growth of a proletariat, that is, a significantly large proportion of the population relying on wage labour for their income alone. That it saw the development of a relatively more important industrial sector on the back of the cloth trade, and a weakening of Lord's authority in the countryside. So, let's keep that theory in the back of our minds as we look at what actually happened. The general model was that towns fell in size during the 15th century. When we talk about model towns, of course it's instinctive to think immediately about Grimsby. I mean, how much more model could you possibly get than Grimsby? Nasty sarcasm aside, we happen to know that Grimsby's population before the Black Death had grown to 2,000 people. This had fallen by 1377 to only 1,500 people. And by the end of the 15th century, it was down to a measly 900 people, which, as I'm sure you'll agree, is a performance almost as feeble as the Grimsby Town football team. Grimsby were having such a rotten time of it, they had to fight tooth and nail with the crown to get its fee farm reduced. Given that it's a while since we've discussed these things, I should remind you that a town usually needed or wanted a charter from the crown, or indeed from its lord so that it could have the liberties to carry out trades, govern itself, charge tolls, and all that sort of thing. As part of this deal, the crowd would agree a fee that the town would have to pay. The word farm is worth explaining to boot. We think of a smelly place with Wellington boots, straw, and dung. But the word in those days derived from the Latin word firma, which means fixed payment. The reason the word gets attached to the smelly place with straw and animal dung comes about because the Lord gave a patch of land over to a tenant for a fixed rent, or a firmer, which then becomes farmer. So a farmer was not initially an agricultural term, it was a financial one. So, back to the good people of Grimsby. They were unable to pay their fee to the king. Grimsby's fee had been set at 50 quid in 1256, By 1450, Grimsby was too poor to pay, and it had been reduced to £30 and then to £20. Now, of course, the people of Grimsby are a cunning lot, so it could well have been that they were just trying it on. In fact, it's a racing certainty that the people of Grimsby were at least in part trying it on, because that's what people do with the taxmen. But they also had very good reason to say what they did and there's plenty of evidence from around the country that other towns had the very same problem. There's archaeological evidence from the period showing houses falling down and being converted into rubbish tips. In Oxford, colleges could be built near the town centre because land was vacant or cheap. In 1455, an inventory from Clantony Priory survived which showed that the plots for which they charged rents had either decayed in value, such as houses becoming cheap tofts, or fallen completely vacant. We see decay in public buildings and walls as well around the country, including parish churches. Now I could go on, but I can tell you are either bored or convinced that towns were getting smaller. Different towns were of course affected differently, with some suffering more than others. But towns either got smaller, or in some cases, completely disappeared. Winchester once, the proud capital of Anglo-Saxon England, for example, shrunk from ten to 12,000 in about 1300 to less than 8,000 in 1417 and down to 4,000 in 1524. East Coast ports suffered. Places like Boston and Lynn may have lost as much as half of their populations and the East Midlands, the glorious East Midlands, suffered too. Towns that completely disappeared tended to be in the west and north of Britain. Wales lost nine of them, Greystoke and Westmorland disappeared as a borough, but there are examples from all over. Towns were affected by the fall in population, but they were also affected by wider changes going on in the economy. Of all sectors, as you have heard from me many times before, the wool trade had traditionally been the engine that had driven the wealth of England. So it will not surprise you to hear that the engine had a leaky carburettor, or whatever the best engine metaphor would be. In the 1390s, exporters were carrying 18,000 sacks a year from England to the continent. Now that's a lot of wool. These were big sacks, as I think we've discussed before. But even that was half the quantity sold earlier in the century in its height. And then in the early 15th century, this fell yet more to only 15,000 a year. It then varied a lot in the 1440s and 1450s and then settled down to about eight or 9,000 sacks a year, which is a fraction of its former glory, 25%. Now, obviously, no one likes falling numbers unless it's waist size. But it's not just that fewer wool sacks are being sold, it's all the associated work to boot. Just like Rover closing down in Brum, it wasn't just the plant itself. It was all the small businesses that supplied it that went under two. So, for example, the merchants employed labour to cart the wool to the port, unload it, and load it onto the ship. The returning ships would bring goods into the port to oil the wheels of commerce. And certainly that drop in activity seriously affected the wealth of the ports on the eastern coast of England. And it would have impacts elsewhere that are a bit more difficult to see but it could explain, for example, the decline in towns like Melton Mowbray. Melton Mowbray now noted for pies, previously famous as a place where wool was gathered for onward transport to the coast. In fact, the East had it bad in the 15th century generally. It got hit also by a decline in arable farming, which we'll talk about in the next episode, and by trade war with the hentz. Now, once again, I don't want to make any assumptions, so just scrub on 30 seconds or so if you know all about the Hanseatic League already. The Hanseatic League is traditionally thought to have been founded by the German city of Lübeck starting around the 13th century and derived from the word Hansa for a convoy. By 1400, the League was a powerful, if loose, confederation of trading towns which could fluctuate between 70 and 170, something of a monster. The purpose of the League was to develop and protect trade into the Baltic. That meant a load of things. Originally, merchants clubbing together for safety in a convoy, then persuading people like Henry II of England to give them various privileges and rights to the ultimate expression of their power, declaring war on kingdoms such as Denmark. The key for the English was that the Hans dominated access to the Baltic, which I think we've covered fairly recently, so I won't go on about it, but essentially the success of English traders in gaining access to the Baltic in the 14th century had been critical to their growth. The relationship with the Hans had helped them achieve that. But there is no silver lining without its cloud. The 15th century was more troubled, with disputes only temporarily settled by treaties in 1409 and 1437. And then, of course, Warwick's swashbuckling approach to international diplomacy had led to open war in 1468. It was a war that did not go well for England, and the Treaty of Utrecht in 1474 was basically an admission of defeat and failed to help the English towns recover any significant share of the carrying trade into the Baltic that they'd once had. It was a bad time to be a Bostonian, for example. So there are loads of bad things for towns, and particularly ports. But just when I have built a picture of the gloom, of despair, and of pain, and a faint smell of untreated drains, let me relieve that gloom a little, and talk about the cloth trade. Because as the wool trade struggled, the cloth trade boomed. As anyone who's played railroad tycoon will know, the value of a manufactured product to the economy is of course way higher than the value of a commodity such as wool. It's because of all that added value. Creating cloth required much greater input than just shearing, transporting and selling wool. And who out there wants to find out a bit more about the process of cloth making in the Middle Ages? If the answer's no, then you might have to resort once more to that fast-forward button. Sorry about that. So, you got your wool. Normally done all at one time with the whole flock, and also normally from live sheep. Pulled wool, as it was called, taken from the skin of a dead sheep, was apparently not as good quality as live. The first thing to do then was to sort it. Now I can see you looking confused because wool is presumably just that. Wool. But no. My extensive research has shown that this is not the case. Actually, while I'm on the subject of research, I did read an article about the breeds of medieval sheep. I've taken the decision not to inflict this fascinating subject on you, though if any of you do have a spare week, let me know. But just a few quickies. Apparently, I am told domesticated sheep were probably introduced to Britain from outside, in Neolithic times, probably 4000 BC-ish. Your sheep was unsurprisingly defined by the quality of its wool. And while a fine wool sheep might set you back ten pence, a coarse wool sheep could be as little as four pence. The reason why English sheep were so highly prized and did so well was that English sheep were generally of the fine variety, but also unusually long for fine wool. Do you know, even as I say this, I have this spooky feeling, I've told you about this before. Do tell me if I'm frequently given to warbling on about sheep. I do like sheep, though. I've often thought if I had to come back as an animal, I might just go for being a sheep. Except the eyes. Don't like the colour of the eyes bit spooky. Anyway I was explaining the cloth making process so we got as far as the wool which is a good start. The wool was separated into the outer layers which tend to be coarser and made into worsted cloth and the inner layers to be made into woolen yarn. The yarn itself would be made into the thicker type for the warp and the thinner for the weft. Then cleaning. For the high-quality stuff, you needed an astringent, and something called lye was the first option. Lye was made by straining ashes. Having said that, stale urine was an option here. Not sure who first decided to clean their yarn by weeing on the wool, but clever lass or clever lad, whoever it was. However, for some obscure reason, it was frowned on and actually outlawed. But in your cottage industry, you were seriously unlikely to be caught, just as I am seriously unlikely to be caught peeing on my compost heap. Anyway, the main objective was to get the lamb grease, lanolin, out of the wool. Once this was done, the wools were laid out on a wooden board in the sun and thoroughly beaten, often with willow switches. And then there might be a preliminary dyeing, which allows me to bring out the fab fact that wool dyed at this early stage was called dyed in the wool. How cool is that? There's the origin of that phrase, dyed in the wool. The things you learn podcasting. Huh. Anyway, sorry this is going on a bit. But then, ironically, you greased the wool, having got grease out beforehand, which seems a little daft. And then you had to separate the strands. And so you combed them, often called carding, with the invention of large cards with loads of little metal hooks on them. Then you spun the wool into yarn. The spinster would either use the handheld spindle or, after the 13th century, the spinning wheel. Despite being much more effective, the spindle took a while to disappear, but did so in the 15th century to a large extent. And while I'm on the word spinster, you might also like to know that the suffix stir, s-t-e-r, as in brewster or spinster, indicates a female worker, while the suffix ER, such as spinner or brewer, indicate to bloke. More fab facts in this episode than you can shake a stick at, should you be so inclined. Weaving was then usually the province of men. Weavers, rather than weavesters. Never heard of a weavester. Anyway, in the 15th and 16th century, there have been plenty of arguments about the concept of something called proto-industrialisation. The theory goes that the cloth-making business in particular established some of the preconditions necessary for industrialization: The specialisation of labour through the putting-out system. The accumulation of capital in the hands of merchants who ran the putting-out system. Whether you accept this idea or not, many families in both towns and country would have a loom and it was usually the man who'd do the weaving. In the 12th century came the invention of the mechanised loom. Before that time, you had to feed the weft, alternately in front and behind the warp. Can you imagine what a pain that would have been? Can you imagine? But the mechanised loom meant you just pressed a pedal. The warp was lifted or lowered, and you passed the shuttle across in one easy movement. It was an absolutely earth-shattering invention that must have improved productivity as much as any invention in the Middle Ages. Once you had your cloth, you went through the process of fulling or felting the cloth, which made the yarns swell and fit together. Often this was done by stamping on the cloth by foot. But then along came fulling mills, and with the use of water power hammers, and again, enormous efficiency gains, the foot tended to fall out of favour, but in the household, or with particularly fine cloth, the foot might well remain the tool of choice. Bayek When I embarked on this, I had no idea that making cloth was so blessed complicated. If I'd known, I may well not have started. Anyway, almost there. We've reached the dyeing process, where again I am delighted to say that we have the source of another expression. Cloths were dried and stretched first on a tenter frame, and were hung on the tenter frames by, yes, you guessed it, tenter hooks. Ta-da! Then came the dyeing. And if I had a mind, we could talk through a whole load of natural dyes that I've found out about. But you might kill me. So rather than that, let me just note that colours in medieval times could be very bright and fresh. We tend to assume they had to be dull, which is wrong. And the examples we see have been lying around for 500 years, which unsurprisingly means they've lost their first blush. So, just something to remember. I should note that many of the dyes needed what was called a mordant. Another substance that fixed the dye to the wool. And the best and most popular was called alum, a crystalline form of aluminium, which not only fixed the dye but heightened its colour. A couple of things about mordants. Firstly, alum was pretty plentiful, but less fortunately, it was most plentiful in the eastern Mediterranean, which was of course now dominated by the Turks. But then... In 1462, the Pope discovered a vast deposit of alum on his territories. Well, not the Pope himself, you understand. Out there with a spade one Saturday evening, his miners discovered it. Now, you might think that was a good thing. No need to rely on the infidel anymore. Clothmakers all over Europe celebrated. Blessed were the clothmakers, almost as blessed as the cheesemakers. And then, of course, they realised to their horror that the supply of this vital chemical had in fact fallen into the hands of the most unscrupulous and unethical of suppliers. Before you could say, Hail Mary, Mother of God, the Pope had stitched up a cartel backed by excommunication. It's got to be the ultimate sales pitch. Buy my product at hideously inflated prices, or your immortal soul will spend eternity twisting in screaming agony. OK, I'll take two, please. It would take a chap called Henry VII of England to break the stranglehold. Remind me to tell you about this sometime. Anyway, the other thing about mordants was whiffery. The mordants used, including urine, by the way, tended to be horribly stinky. So dyers tended to join tanners at the outskirts of the town, where they whiffed a little less. Good Lord, where are we now? A digression within a digression, which is itself a digression. For some reason, you persuaded me to talk about cloth making. Anyway, there were then a deal of things you needed to do to finish the cloth. You needed to shear all that messy, fluffy stuff off with a pair of shears. Then you needed to use a teasel to groom the cloth and give it a smooth finish. And then finally, press it. But not all cloth merchants went to the bother of the final stages. Cloth might be sold finished or unfinished, dyed or undyed, according to the buyer. As I think I mentioned a few episodes ago... Exports to Flanders were for unfinished cloth, to the Hanseatic ports it went finished. So there you go, off you all hop and make a few finished medieval garments. But now, here come the figures. In 1390, the cloth trade had already been growing for a while, and reached 40,000 cloths exported. By the 1440s that had grown to 60,000 cloths although the Civil War then hit exports in the 1450s and 1460s. But by the 1470s, it was back up to 60,000 cloths again. It's not just the direct income, of course. The growth generated associated trading, such as the import of raw materials like alum or oil, or Spanish iron for the carding process. Towns profited from this variously, and there were ups and downs. So as ever, the rag trade was affected by the vagaries of fashion. Somewhere in the world, for example, is some dipstick that persuaded me to wear flared jeans in the 1970s. In addition, cloth making and styles were often highly regional. The town of Coventry, for example, excelled and specialised in making caps for a while. Not just for England, actually, but for the continent. But by the end of the 15th century, Coventry's caps had gone out of style, and by 1523 Coventry's population had therefore fallen from 10,000 to 6,000. Colchester and York were famous for their cloth in the early 15th century, but by the end of it had lost their way. All that goes to say, of course, is that ever in business there were winners and losers. Lincoln had once thrived on its unique Lincoln Scarlet, a superfine red cloth that attracted merchants from as far away as Florence, and which were exported through the nearby town of Boston. By the end of the 15th, it had fallen from grace, and taken the port of Boston with it, only to be revived in the 16th century by Lincoln Green. But meanwhile, Salisbury, Exeter and Worcester all expanded through the 15th century due to the cloth trade. Little Kendall in Cumbria so well, it became the largest town in the northwest so towns did specialise in particular products and could succeed big time if they got it right. In the middle of this sat the cloth merchant, running the putting-out system and accumulating and deploying capital in the way that got everyone excited about proto industrialization a theory deeply questioned because putting-out was not new as a system. Certainly it had been around since 1300. Many households would have a loom in the corner and do piecework. But there does seem to be more concentration in the 15th century, figures like Thomas Horton, who owned four fulling mills, and whose house stands in Bradford-on-Avon to this day. And there seems to be a growing vertical integration under very wealthy clothiers, who acquired sheep pastures, fulling mills, looms, dyeing establishments and so on, profiting from every stage. They came near to small-scale factory systems when they introduced spinning houses and dye houses next to their homes and directly employed craftsmen. This kind of concentration of capital and process could dominate a town. 40% of men were employed by the cloth trade in Worcester, for example. All very exciting! Just a few centuries to go to the agonies of the Industrial Revolution, for which science and technology was, of course, a massive factor, but the accumulation of capital a vital ingredient too, unpopular as bankers may be. Another factor that affected towns regionally was the impact of something that has irritated most of England for hundreds of years, the success of London. Sure, London suffered a population decline just like everywhere else, from 80,000 before the Black Death to 50,000 in 1377. But then, unusually, it grew. It grew to 60,000 by 1520, plus the 3,000 that lived in Westminster and the 8,000 in Southwark. And plus, it was successful commercially. It pulled the carrying trade away from regional ports like Bristol because of the strength of its continental links. It drew the magnates to it as the centre of politics, the magnates with all their big houses, 75 of them by the 1520s. And of course, wherever the magnates go, the gentry will follow, dribbling gently. London was the centre of the law, a profession that itself became a standard route to success for the gentry in particular. It drew in entrepreneurs like Dick Whittington, out to seek their fortune from the streets paved with gold and poo. Its size meant it could offer greater choice than any other city, and those who could afford it, all over the country, bought from London merchants. The size of its trade meant there were so many specialist producers in each trade that London could offer the greatest quality. All these things were important to London's success, but for London the biggest single factor was that this was a virtuous circle for it because its economic power and its position at the centre of political life gave it enormous political influence. London merchants were way over-represented in the influential organisations like the staplers and the merchant adventurers, and therefore virtually controlled the export of cloth to the continent. In 1497 there were furious complaints from the merchant adventurers in Newcastle that at cloth fairs the Londoners got all the best stalls while every other town got shoved out to the edges. And so starts centuries of us provincials moaning about London. Not that London gives a tinker's curse, but it makes us feel better. But once again, it's not the same everywhere. Some towns lost out to London, but others still grew. It's all about competitive advantage, ladies and gentlemen, the thing that makes the world go round, segmenting the market and offering differential benefits. So, Southampton grew because for Italian merchants they were closer than London. High Wycombe grew because they specialised in Siminal bread. Would you believe? Siminal bread. Quite why anyone would eat anything with cinnamon in it is a mystery to me, I have to say. But apparently there are some folk who can eat it without vomiting. The town of Walden in Essex focused on growing saffron in gardens around the city, hence their modern name Saffron Walden. If I describe one English town as the Golden City, the City of Dreams, you will of course recognise that I am talking of Birmingham. By the 15th century, Birmingham was already a flourishing centre for blades. I could go on. There are even some examples of new towns appearing. Very few. Basically, the list of English towns is established before 1300. But Brighton and Minehead seem to join the list around about now there was another factor working in favour of towns. During the boom of prosperity from the 11th century onwards, the demand for the services of towns was so strong that village markets grew up to fill the gap in supply. These markets died in the 15th century. The level of demand was simply not there for artisans and merchants to go to the village markets, or at least not the kind of merchants you'd like to meet. So the towns also lost a bunch of competitors. And while we're on the positive side of the bus, towns usually remained a draw for their regions and continued to be critical for exchange, administration and production. Their function hadn't gone away by any means. And wages tended to be higher in towns than in the countryside and therefore towns still attracted immigrants. A fully skilled and fully employed carpenter or mason could probably earn as much as £6 a year in a town. Wow! Now I know what you're going to say, you're going to say, so uh, how much is that worth in today's money then? After all, £6 these days can't even buy me a round in the boozer. Well, I had a look at the National Archives currency converter which told me £1 in 14 50 would be worth £455 in today's money. Which has to be tripe. Must be a much greater escalator than that. So all I can say is it to be a night you needed to have income of £40, and there are not many more than a thousand knights in the whole country. They are a pretty well-off bunch, and so £6 by comparison with £40 is pretty handsome. Mercantile profits could still be very high. There are numerous examples of families from this time who rose to prominence and have left their mark on towns to this day in the form of buildings and endowments. You can go to vast numbers of English towns and see high-quality, timber-framed 15th-century houses that survive to this day, because they were well-built. And towns continued to attract the poor, since they could get work or arms more easily than in the country. So, what's the super summary then? Well, here it is. On the minor side of the equation, the population of towns fell after the Black Death and then again after 1377, and stagnated at best through the 15th century. The wool trade moving through towns was a fraction of its former glory when Edward III was beating seven bells out of the French. But there were winners and losers. The list of English towns is pretty much set by 1300, but there were a few more in the 15th century to bring the total to 750. Some towns like Exeter did well. Even the ones that plummeted in population remained central to their region. There was still money to be made with a fair breeze and a following wind. Essentially, the proportion of folks who lived in towns was pretty much 20% in 1377, and it was pretty much 20% in 1500. The conclusion is that the commercial outlook built through the glory days of the 12th, 13th and 14th centuries did not disappear after the Black Death, It remained very much part of English life. The economy didn't disintegrate, it just adjusted, got smaller, and then carried on. OK, quite enough for now. Could I formally apologise for all that stuff about cloth making? And please keep it quiet that I want to be a sheep. Wouldn't look good at work. Next week, more on the economy, the countryside, what it was like to live in towns and standards of living. I love this stuff, and I am aware that some people would prefer ditch water so I apologise for that and I'll try not to go on too much. I had some thank yous to regular donators Jubal, Jim, Cathy, Cool and Eric. I'm very grateful thanks this month to Derek, Cassidy, Jonathan, Mariah, Niall, all champion as you know at home, and Sarah. I read all your comments, by the way, when you add them, so thanks very much for the kind words when you add them. And thanks to all of you and so on, it's become wallpaper this bit, hasn't it? So seriously, it's great to get comments on the website, iTunes and Facebook. I read every single one. Sometimes I dribble. Anywho, have a good one, everyone, and see you next week.